but you have to have it resolved significantly far in advance of that date to give candidates a legitimate opportunity to decide to run for office and to qualify for office. Otherwise, it becomes pretty much an incumbency protection provision. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of AEI. And I'm Don Palmer of the Election Assistance Commission. Welcome to the podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Well, today's topic is about redistricting and recount. Our guest today is Mark Braden. Uh, he's a partner with Baker Hostetler, and he's a renowned expert on redistricting and election law litigation, including campaign finance. Going back into his background just a little bit, he actually has served at the Ohio Secretary of State's office as the director and chief counsel of the Ohio Election Commission, as well as, as we mentioned, the Ohio Secretary of State's office. He was the chief election counsel for the um, Republican National Committee. He's also uh, represented numerous political parties, legislatures, candidates in both redistricting and recounts. And in his spare time, which I'm sure he has a lot, he has been an adjunct professor with George Washington University, where he's taught campaign finance. I've had the privilege of um, being a student of his during this course, and I appreciate your service in teaching campaign finance. Welcome aboard, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to talk about redistricting and recounts. I'm going to let you start off, John, with some questions. Sure. You know, we'd love to hear your wisdom about redistricting, but maybe in two ways. One, generally, some of the developments in redistricting. But then in particular, we'd really like to focus in on the ways that redistricting uh, and election administration come together and ways that people maybe don't think about that we're redrawing lines at the at the district level. But then there's also this running the election component where there are precincts and the need to match up voters with their new districts. So, so let's let's start with the with the broad. And you know, you've been working on redistricting for a number of years, but you know, I've I've had an observation that I, I think we seem to be having more re-redistrictings, meaning redistrictings done between the the typical in the ten year period between the censuses, a, a places a map is put in place, but then either a legislature reconsiders or maybe the political party in power changes. Or a court comes back, not the first year that that map is in place, but later on. Uh, would you say that? And what, what would you say about the state of redistricting in terms of its stability and the stability of the maps today compared to where it was a number of years ago? Stability, redistricting, those don't go together very well right now. I used to tell a joke that I thought it would be impossible to have more redistricting litigation without admitting more states to the union. That, of course, turns out to have been wrong since you can have continuous pieces of litigation in different locations over the same plans. One of my clients in this cycle is the Michigan Independent Redistricting Commission, which is sort of a something was adopted by initiative in the state of, of Michigan. And it's supposed to be and is a bipartisan, nonpartisan, good government effort to redistrict both the congressional lines and the legislative lines in Michigan. And you would think that would be something that litigation wouldn't be involved in. But of course, I'm now presently involved in lawsuit number five involving that process. So yes, the redistricting provides the perfect recipe for litigation in 
in our litigious 21st century. The stakes are high and the law is quite murky. So people are, you know, it's cheaper to redraw the lines than it is to defeat an incumbent member. So if you can draw them out of the seats by spending a million dollars on a piece of litigation, people are quite willing to do that now. So, Mark, you, you talked about the litigious nature of redistricting, and it occurs quite often. So what's the impact on election administrators as, you, as you've seen it, having served both in election administration, you, you served at the party level, and you also served on, you know, as an attorney? Well, every time you redistrict, you create an opportunity for problems. When you redraw the lines, you have to move around who goes to what polling place, what ballot goes to what polling place, what the precinct lines are. And every time you do that, you you sort of mix it up a little bit. And normally it works out fine, but there are always slips and cracks. And so when you do a lot of recounts or contests like I have, one of the common mistakes are people who actually end up voting the wrong ballot on election day. And that's often driven by simply the redrawing of the process, especially when you're doing it sort of off-cycle. When you do it on-cycle and you have one redistricting, then hopefully at the same time you'll be re-precincting. It'll be easier to align the process up. But when you sort of in mid-cycle court order or, or a new legislative body decides to redraft a plan, then you've opened up the possibility of trying to jam a new plan into the old design. And that's the recipe for people making mistakes. And so voters end up voting with a ballot that doesn't have the candidate for the district they actually live in because they got handed the wrong ballot in good faith, but by mistake because they haven't gotten the the precinct lines aligned with the new district lines. Now, I know we have a lot of people who uh, listen to this podcast who are either election administrators or interested in this. And I tell you, when I talk to local election administrators, for the most part, they actually worry about changing their precincts at all. They often would have to go to the county government and, and get permission and Maybe that's a, a difficult process and people, voters don't like to have a new polling place. They like to go to the same place over and over again. And so even in normal times when they're thinking, well, maybe I need an extra precinct because it's getting too big, it's a difficult thing. But when when redistricting hits, they may be faced with some of their precincts are just literally being cut up into different districts where they're going to have to do some sort of redistricting. So one, I guess, do you, do you have that sense when you talk to election administrators and others that, that, that they're being left out of the process? But then second, maybe we could get you to comment on a, a well-known case in recent years in Virginia, where down in the Fredericksburg, Pennsylvania County area, there were a number of voters, and, and this is something like what you were talking about before, and it probably had been going on for a couple of elections, who were literally showing up, and the lines of the precincts did not agree with the lines of the, the, the districts drawn, and voters were getting the wrong ballots either voting for people they shouldn't have or not being able to vote for people they shouldn't have. You were involved in that litigation. So if you could just give that as an example to people of what how it could go wrong. Well, it's, it's no particular surprise that election officials don't like to change precinct lines because when you change precinct lines, you bring in all types of problems. The starting point, of course, is that, you know, you'll have unhappy voters who, even if you send a notice to them, if you change their polling place, they'll go to their old polling place half the time 
and they'll be mad at you as an election official that they went to the wrong polling place. So even though you noticed them of it, so it's it's just you know, and getting polling places isn't that easy. You know, some places it's it's there are plenty of elementary schools that you can move into, but there are many locations where it's hard to find polling places. Not only do you have just the question of availability of space, but it has to be space that's that legally works and it has to be handicapped. As an example, it has to be accessed by handicapped people. So that leaves out a huge number of potential and traditional polling place locations across the country. So there are a lot of different problems. Change just presents problems. Change gives you the chance to make mistakes. Everybody, if you're going to have a different polling place than everybody at every level, the guys delivering the voting equipment and machines have to go to different locations. So there's a lot of ways to mess up. Now, when you're redrawing, the Virginia case is the classic example of, of the problems with moving. I was involved in that litigation and the disputes arising from it. They had redrawn legislative districts. And for a number of years, there were certain parts of certain neighborhoods that uh, had been assigned to the wrong representative district. And this was not just a one-time occurrence. This had happened through a series of election cycles, but nobody had ever noticed. And that is often the case. Nobody notices that even though you live in Joe Smith's representative district, when you went to vote, you got a ballot for Mary Smith because Mary Smith represents the adjoining district, and they assigned your block on the street to the wrong district simply by mistake. And that can go on for a long time until somebody like me has a client who has a very close election of a few dozen votes, and you go back and you start recounting the vote. And then, oh, by the way, wait a second, this neighborhood is supposed to be in District 15, and they're voting in District 14. And so it's just the type of thing. And of course, the egg's been scrambled, so it's hard to put it back in the shell when you've already cooked it. In other words, you've already had the election. If you can notice these types of mistakes in the printing process and earlier in the process, you can correct them. But it's a real mess as to what to do after people have already voted. It's hard to have a new election. It's very costly and painful. And you almost always have a tiny turnout in comparison. So what do you do in that situation? And of course, state laws vary greatly across the country as to what to do. But that's not an unusual scenario. I would suggest to you in every election somewhere in this country, in every state, there'll be some representative districts which will have voters who are misassigned. And it's the type of mistake that happens. So Mark, you know, we've talked about this issue offline. And one of the advice I always give is when you do a redistricting map, don't leave it in the hands of officials. Give them the resources and the technology and the time to actually get this right. Because once the election takes place, you don't want to have these type of snafus. Would you agree with that? Oh, I, could, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's sort of interesting, though. There's a lot of different ways the mistakes can be made. Sometimes these turned out to be long-lasting mistakes that are simply not a factor of the actual redistricting process, but is an earlier leftover problem from some effort to annex the neighborhood into a political subdivisions. And the actual county 
people get the nut, the, the geographic folks make mistakes in where things are. They have precincts that they think are located in one particular geographic area. And that's the way it comes over to the board and the board gets it right from the data that they receive, but they receive erroneous data as to where a neighborhood is geographically. So you're right, you need to actually look at the data and eyeball it with people who actually live in the neighborhoods to know whether it's correct. And your poll workers are often, since normally they're drawn from people in that geographic area, are the ones to really look at and try in the training process, especially post a redistricting or post drawing new precincts, you really need the local folks to look at them because inevitably they will find some mistakes that just don't jump out to people at the county or any higher level of geography. And have you seen either in regular legislative redistricting instances or ones done by courts or by commissions, just particularly good practices. I mean, I, I, I hear, I'm taking from what you're saying that sort of involving election officials or people who know about the election official job, at least in the implementation process and using GIS, having the, speaking the same language about districts and precincts, those are helpful. But are there are those good practices? What, what are the good practices that you've seen? Well, I, I can tell you what you should try to avoid and you should try to avoid the old meets and bounds ways of drawing districts. We, we have relatively accurate, so they used to call them tiger files from, from the, the Bureau. We do good, have good electronic maps. They do have mistakes, but they're, they're much better than people trying to go from anything resembling paper. So the, the electronic processes are your best. Avoiding drawing or being dependent upon any type of meets or bounds or historical documents go to the census tracts eh? and go to the census blocks. There'll be some mistakes there, but in fact, those, are the t- those mistakes will appear more like instantly bizarre to people than will trying to cr- go from some type of traditional meets and bounds descriptions of land. So the electronic systems work well, but they need adult supervision because the census makes geographic mistakes too. But the Bureau's data is good, and and that's the best starting point to go forward. It's more dependable than most state systems are, but you just, you got to merge the two together, and inevitably you'll find some mistakes. And so each county board of elections or county clerk, when you re-precinct, you just have to look at what it looks like in yourself because in the end, almost inevitably, if you physically look at printouts and maps, you'll find some anomalies which will be readily apparent. You can't just depend upon eyeballing them, but you should use the sort of what I call the interocular test at the back end of the process, and that usually will find some mistakes that you don't otherwise pick up. Just uh, going on to timing of elections, we talked a little bit, Mark, about uh, the timing and how redistricting litigation may sort of pause the process of implementation, or the, you may feel as an election official, you're being jammed with a very, you know, a quick upcoming election, but litigation that's going down to the wire. There's always a number of these cases. Um, we hear a lot of debate over the last, let's say, five to 10 years about the Purcell doctrine. 
In some cases, that's helped election officials, and so has the doctrine of latches. <laughs> Those are two terms that <laughs> you, you haven't heard for a while, but, but after Virginia, suddenly latches sort of re, uh, was out there. You waited too long, or the Purcell Doctrine is we're too close to the election. Talk a little bit about those two concepts and why they're actually helping election administrators to some point. Yeah, well, Purcell's the doc, doctrine that a federal court should not try to change the election process in midstream or to change it so late that, in fact, the changes that they might feel would be appropriate under requirements of the U.S. Constitution or whatever, are simply too late to be enacted without causing serious disruption to the election process. Courts are extremely hesitant, generally, to do anything that would interfere with the date of the general election. I mean, and, and in most places, that's effectively mandated, at least on the federal side, is effectively mandated by federal statute. So there's the Purcell Doctrine is the requirement if the court is going to require a redistricting or even some other types of change in the election process, it has to be early enough in the process not to impair the functioning. And of course, that involves a, a number of different things which have extended out a longer period of time because some of the Help America Vote and Overseas Voting Rights Act requirements for the preparation of materials. If you redistrict, then of course you've got to have new ballots everywhere where you've affected the process. Redistricting is a ripple process, so even if you're just going to change one district, there's no way normally to change one district. So when you change one district, you have a ripple effect around to other districts. So it's always a bigger process on the administration of elections than some federal judges want to recognize. So the Purcell Doctrine is usually observed by the courts. Some, some courts have a different notion as to how quickly election officials can get things done. But usually there's, a, there's a, a degree of deferral to the election officials. It might be an uncomfortable time frame for election officials, but courts theoretically should be dedicated to giving election officials sufficient time to conduct an orderly election process. Latches is a broad legal concept that applies not just in the election contest, but in all types of, of litigation and seeking redress. It's really a requirement in the law that if you need legal redress, it has to be done in a prompt fashion. And in the election context, prompt is very prompt in comparison to the sort of normal jurisdiction. Our, all of our election laws are focused on the need for legitimacy and the question of who is going to hold the office is resolved through the election process or recount process or a contest process before the time is for them to sit in the chair. And so the latches process, if, you, if an election has been screwed up, you need to pursue that type of remedy immediately under the state laws. So if you don't do that, then your rights would disappear under the latches document. And that's really to provide continuity and legitimacy and to avoid, as you see now, some people claiming to have won elections that have been over for a number of years. And can I go back to Purcell? You, you laid out the principle, but just 
I know the court probably hasn't been exact about this, but if you could just give your sense of where the court is on issues like, you know, how, how close to an election is too close to get those districts done? Could you, should you move a primary to accommodate a new set of maps? And then on this, a second point is that, that Purcell in all of its context has broadly been understood as the Supreme Court watching over other federal courts to make sure they don't get involved too late in the election process. But there are, of course, state constitutional challenges on state by state courts and state constitutions, which the federal courts may or may not get involved in. So, so your thoughts about you know, where the law stands and what the deadlines really are, and, and what about these state state challenges? Well, you know, I haven't been in a lawsuit in the last 30 years involving election and redistricting where uh, somebody wasn't arguing the Purcell Doctrine. And in fact, I'm filing briefs later this week. I don't know. I can't remember which side we're on at any particular moment as to whether it's too early or too late to go forward with a particular piece of litigation. So if you're asking me what the, what the deadlines are, uh, the answer is there isn't one, which isn't very good for the clients. It's quite good for the lawyers, but it's not so good for the clients. Generally, what we're talking about here is a, there is generally a great reluctance to change election dates. There have been occasions, relatively rare occasions, where there's been a willingness to push back some primary dates, but push back some fouling deadlines and whatever. But there's a good deal of reluctance to do that in the, in the courts. So they attempt to get resolution of the matter or delay of the resolution to the next election cycle if they can't do it without moving dates around. And what we're looking here is not simply, oh, we've got to have a new plan in place before the election day. Well, obviously, that's ridiculous. It's got to be way before then. It's got to be, in fact, way before when you, in fact, have qualification of candidacy. Usually the first piece of the puzzle is what is the date on which candidates need to file for office? So you've got to have a resolution sometime prior to that. And generally, most courts will say, not only do you have to have it resolved sometime prior to that, but you have to have it resolved significantly far in advance of that date to give candidates a legitimate opportunity to decide to run for office and to qualify for office. Otherwise, it becomes pretty much an incumbency protection provision. So what you're usually talking about, rule of thumb, Probably 30 days. The last day you can, in my view, the last possible day generally would be more than 30 days in advance of the qualification deadlines, where you would try to get it in place without changing any dates, 30 days in in advance of qualification deadlines. Once you push up closer than that, then it really becomes difficult because people really do need the opportunity to you know what, what office they're going to run for and what the parameters of it are. And so a shorter period of time than that really hugely disadvantages non-incumbent candidates. So 30 days in front of the filing deadline is about as close as you want anything new in place. And that's, and that's hard even in that time frame because you're talking about figuring out some way for the various election officials to get that information out and deal with it. So we'll call it the Braden clarification or Purcell. Well, the, the last question I have, you know, and there's there's so many topics to talk to you uh, about, you know, there's a lot of hot topics at the Supreme Court on redistricting, including 
Uh, the biggest one uh, was partisan gerrymandering up until recently. But what is the status of that? I mean, I do think there's more state courts that are getting involved with that. Is that a result of the Supreme Court's ruling sort of punting this back to the states? Partially. In the federal court arena, except in some incredibly narrow circumstances, the partisan gerrymandering claim is is dead, non-justiciable, a matter which the federal courts can't take up. There may be some little window in some very narrow areas, but effectively it's dead. That jurisprudence, people wanting to fight about districts that they think are so severely drawn against their interests that they think they might be unconstitutional under the state constitution. We have some states who have taken the position, the answer to that question is there is a claim available. Pennsylvania has threw out a plan and takes the position that under its state equal protection or open election provision, it's justiciable. Pretty much else across the country, it's not been an effective claim. Theoretically, the New Mexico Supreme Court said the issue was justiciable, but the the congressional plan, which was under anybody's normal estimation, a democratic gerrymander, they decided it wasn't severe enough to violate the, the New Mexico statute. The North Carolina Supreme Court has backtracked from their earlier finding of it being justiciable. So... There's no state other than Pennsylvania and possibly New Mexico where that provision of a piece of litigation brought forward simply on a kind of equal protection or a First Amendment. Is there any state that's that's letting that type of litigation move forward? That doesn't mean there isn't some other types of, of partisan litigation because a number of states have state statutes or constitutional provisions that talk about partisan fairness. And those provisions are, in fact, subject to judicial interpretation. So you can bring a partisan gerrymandering case, as an example, in Michigan. Or you could, because there's a Michigan commission that's required to have partisanly fair plans for Congress and House, and people can obviously have different views as to what's fair, so that brings up litigation. Ohio has some language to that effect about partisan fairness and the drawing of lines. Again, it's a it's a tricky process, even if you're trying to follow a state constitutional provision, because it's very hard to draw fair plans in a number of states because of the geography of the state. When you're in a state where, as an example, Democrat voters in, in many states are extremely concentrated in a few geographic areas. So if you draw geographically-based plans and simply draw them based on geography uh, and population equality, you'll get a plan that will have a strong, quote-unquote, lean Republican simply because of the geography of the state. So it's a concept that, that even if you have language that says you should do it, it's hard to marry with the other geographic requirements of the state. So maybe we can move on to another topic, which you have a lot of experience in recounts. In fact, I think there's an argument to be made that you may have been involved in more recounts than anyone. And so maybe to start this out, of course, recounts often reveal some of the other 
issues or problems that have gone on in the running of the election. But could you contrast recounts at the beginning of your career, maybe when you were back in the Ohio Secretary of State's office or earlier in your career, with recounts today? What, what are the issues that we used to argue about and what does it look like today? What, what are the big things that uh, would typically be part of a recount? Well, I'll, I'll start out with the simple observation that there was a time where there was much more resistance to defeated candidates to recount and or contest elections because it was just felt to be you're a sore loser. So that sort of sore loser approach seems to have blown away. And so there's a many more elections that are being uh, recounted than in the past. There doesn't seem to be any stigma of of people accusing people of being sore losers and that being difficult to go forward politically following that. The process has changed because of how we vote has changed. There was a time up until the late 70s that a majority of the electorate voted on mechanical voting machines. And there could be problems with those. Sure, they could be set up wrong or they could be broken or lost or whatever. But they, they tend to be recounting them was a, a task that was pretty ministerial. Now, very few mechanical machines, I'm not sure any mechanical machines are being used anywhere in the country now. Now we're, we're, we're in usually optical scan systems or paper ballot systems. There are, I guess, a few electronic, direct electronic machines left, although most of them, I think, now have paper. But has changed less than you would think because most of recounts, frankly, aren't over the principle. They were never over the big AVM machines recounting them. You recount them and you usually, 99% of the time, come up with the same number that Wednesday or Thursday after the election when you're going back over the machines again. And you saw the same thing in the electronic machines, the direct machines. And to a large degree, you see something of the same thing in most of the optical scans. The problems are almost always dealing with ballots that are cast outside of the election day polling place process. The vast majority of changes in recounts occur either through issues that arise in the context of mail voting or absentee voting, or some combination, depending on what you want to call it. And so, because those are pieces of paper that pass through more hands than an election day process, more hands mean more mistakes and more problems. And so, it hasn't really changed much. Most recounts in the 70s and 80s dealt with problems with absentee balloting and mail voting. Most of the problems in recounts and contests still now involves pieces of mail voting and absentee and, and voting outside the polling places because they're just polling places. Most polling places in our country where people vote in person, the process is so regulated and so watched over that that's a very good, solid process. Unfortunately, our mail service is not quite so good as <laughs> as our service. So there's just a whole bunch of other mistakes that can be made. You'd be sh shocked. I, I, I can't tell you how many recounts I've been on where people have literally found bags of mail that showed up that had ballots in them 
uh, that got misdelivered or got delivered late or got delivered and were put in a file cabinet somewhere and people forgot about them. Uh, that, th that's the most common mistake in, you find in a recount is people find ballots that they didn't count on election day because they arrived before election day and they got filed away somewhere, sort of normal human error. And so election day process works very well generally. There are, I've certainly seen exceptions to it. But every other process has all the shortcomings you would imagine possible. So John mentioned, Mark, that you probably have re represented more candidates in conducting a recount. What should the listeners take away from your experience, good or bad, about the accuracy of elections? And what should their expectations be in a close race, let's say 1,000 votes and then let's say 100 votes? This may not be a popular thing with certain groups now, but our election system really works very well, extremely well, and extremely well at the polling place level. That said, when you cast millions of ballots, say in a statewide election, you cast millions of ballots, I absolutely 100% guarantee you there will be some screw-ups. You give a voter a piece of paper and a writing instrument, the level of creativity exceeds anything you can possibly imagine. So, so there'll, there'll be problems. If you recount a race, let's say a statewide race or even a, a congressional race of more than a thousand votes, after you've gone through the next day where there aren't any er straightforward arithmetic errors, people didn't transpose numbers, you know, it, was, it wasn't 3,100 votes, it was 1,300 votes. But once you get past that first stage, that's usually done on a, by Wednesday or Thursday morning or whatever. You get sort of missing precincts that didn't make it in election night where transposition errors that are apparent to everybody very quickly the same day or the next day. And you're talking about a genuine recount. I've never seen a recount change more than 1,000 votes ever, period. Most recounts are driven by something called random error. And random error tends to be just that random, and errors tend to go both directions. So even if you find, it's not, you do a statewide election, you might well find more than a thousand votes that you have mistakes in some way, shape, or form. The problem is for the candidate who's a thousand votes behind, they tend to be random and they go both ways. So you don't pick up a thousand votes. And so if you're recounting a number on that range, then it's unlikely to change. If you're talking less than three digits, you're talking about something that you almost want to reach in your pocket and flip the coin in the air. If you're talking about double digits in a statewide race, the chances of change of who won and who lost are quite high because the random errors are just that. They go back and forth. But if they're in a very narrow range, then things happen and you can, can change. I've seen plenty of recounts change two or 300 votes. That happens all the time. And frankly, if you're talking about less than 100 votes in a statewide race or a congressional race, in all honesty, there's a good chance you'll really never, to any degree of certainty, know who won and lost because there are just too many issues that you can't resolve. You can't resolve, as I said, that voter who got a piece of paper and a pencil in their hand. And they may be writing in some unique language to themselves. And good luck trying to figure out who they were voting for. And you lose 
there were supposedly 300 votes in a precinct, and you have a record of 300 votes. But when you recount them, you can only find 250. What happened to the other 50? Maybe you can figure it out. Maybe you can't. Sometimes you come and find errors which you just can't resolve, and they tend to be at the very low level. But it's very, very common because the system is designed not by gods, and it's not run by angels. So <laughs> there will be mistakes. And if you're talking about millions of pieces of paper, those mistakes will often be unresolvable. So time has been flying by, and, and unfortunately, I think we're, we're at the end of our podcast, but we do always ask our guests two questions to close the podcast. And I'll start with the first one, and then I'll let Don close us out. And the first one is, can you tell us about how you got into elections? And then if you could look back to your pre-election self and give the early Mark Braden some advice about elections, what you've learned, what that, what that new person wouldn't have known about elections, what would it be? Like a lot of lawyers, I got into my field by pretty much happen chance. I had, I'm the last of the Vietnam era army folks, and I was expecting to spend six years in the army as a JAG officer. So I had not made any preparations to get any type of employment post-graduating from law school with the anticipation I'd be wearing a green uniform for six years. I graduated in 1976, and I suddenly... There were a lot of army officers who had the options to be a civilian or at least a long-time reservist. So I had the option of, of six months of active duty and the rest as a reservist, uh, which was great, except that I hadn't made any preparations to get myself employed. So when I was studying for the bar exam, I had worked as a volunteer in a campaign, just running a phone bank type thing. And from that, I talked to some of the people and I ended up working for the Ohio Secretary of State, really because they offered me a job, not because I had any you know, reason why they would hire me. And then I ended up working for the, the Secretary of State, who had actually been Secretary of State from 1950 up until the, this 78 election. And so that, that was really it. Totally by happen chance did I get involved. And then when I was leaving there, that was a blossoming period of campaign financing regulation and election disputes. So they were looking, the RNC was looking for someone who had experience with state campaign financing law. And there weren't many people like that around. And there weren't many people like that around who had to be looking for a job since the Secretary of State I worked for lost the election. And so that's how I ended up working at the RNC. When I started working at the RNC, the number of lawyers that were involved it, with a significant portion of their practice on election law, you could count all of them without the need to take your socks off. That, that has changed. So my advice to someone thinking about doing it now, I enjoy it, fortunately, since it's what I've done for most of my career. You don't want to think about it as a lot of lawyers do as I'm the political advisor to the candidate. The people who give political advice get paid for political advice. The election lawyers should get paid for being lawyers. Election law is a very heavily regulated process. It has gotten a lot less friendly than it used to be. When I worked at the RNC, 
we had a non-aggression pact between the DNC and the RNC. We viewed the good government people who wanted to regulate campaign financing more as the enemies rather than each other, at least in the legal forum. But it's, uh, politics has gotten to be more of a contact sport than it used to be. That may be simply a reflection of my hair color rather than reality, but I, we're in a less friendly, more litigious society now than we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. So there's a lot of business out there, but you've got to realize it's practicing law. It's not you know, playing politics generally. So Mark, you, you probably have seen it all. What is the funniest or most unusual story that you've encountered over the last 40 years doing this election law stuff? Well, the most unusual story is a Virginia election just a couple of years ago that in effect ended up deciding who was the speaker of the Virginia House. So I represented with one of my partners the candidate that appeared on election day to have lost the election. Was it five votes or six votes? I can't remember at the time. And so we did a recount and there was one vote that it wasn't clear. And initially, so when they did the recount, the Democratic candidate appeared to have won the election. And then it, as it turned out, it was a, when they recounted it again, it was a mistake. So we ended up in an actual tie. And this was, in fact, so people talk about my vote doesn't count. It's only a single vote. This single vote, when we ended up having a tie, we ended up having to do a lot, which was basically a lottery system to pull out you know, the, the colored balls to wh who wins the election. And, you know, ended up being the Republican candidate, which then resulted in the Republican electing a Speaker of the House, all based upon a single vote who, frankly, there was in many ways, what really essentially happened is that vote got thrown out because the person had on its face voted for two, for two people for the same office. So it was a question of an oval with a line through it versus two X's. And damned if I knew who the hell that person voted for, nor could anybody else make a reasonable argument as to who they voted for. But this was the vote to determine who the Speaker of the Virginia House of Representatives was. So, you know, go out and vote because your one vote might be the determining vote. It does actually happen. Well, Mark Braden, thank you for joining us in the voting booth. Thank you, Mark. Well, thank you for inviting me. As you can tell, I can talk for a long time about elections. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hung Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time. Yeah.